Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Welcome once again to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, Amplify producer at Nottingham Playhouse. Joining me today is Paulette Randall, MBE. Paulette is a theatre and TV director whose work includes Tin Star for Sky Atlantic and Holby City, EastEnders and Death in Paradise for the BBC. Her work in the theatre includes Gem of the Ocean and Pinchy Kobe and the Seven Duppies at the Tricycle Theatre, Frankie and Johnny at the Claire de Lune for Chichester Festival Theatre, Dr Faustus for Shakespeare's Globe and Fences at the Duchess Theatre, which made her the first black woman to stage a production in the West End. She's a former artistic director of Tallowa and was the associate director of the London 2012 Olympics opening ceremony. We had a great time recording this, so please enjoy my conversation with Paulette Mandel. Hello, Paulette. Thank you for joining us today on the Nottingham Playhouse Amplified podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, Craig. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, very happy to be talking to you on a Monday morning. It's an excellent way to start the week. Um, another week uh, in uh, inside the house. Uh, what does what does social distancing look like for you, Paulette? What have you been up to? Um, well, my flat's certainly looking cleaner. Um, I've just been amusing myself. I've been um, reading lots and uh, watching far too much television, but it's been fun in a weird way. What have you been reading? Is there anything you can you can recommend? Um, oh, God, probably not. But um, actually, there's one that I've just finished reading, which is by Dr. Rajan Chatterjee. Feel better in five. Your daily plan to feel great for life. And does it work? Well, you've got to try it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the next thing. But it's a great read. Ah, um, good stuff. Um, so... Uh, Obviously, at this time, Paulette, you're uh, not working because, well, a lot of people aren't. And obviously, your profession involves being outside and, and being with other people. How did your uh, uh, your journey into your work life begin? So, like, where are you, where are you from, Paulette? Where did you grow up? I'm born and bred South Londoner. I was born in Brixton. And I have, in all that time, I've moved about a mile away from where I was born. Well, it's a lovely I'm... part of the world. Very exciting oh, yeah, part of the world. Cool. Cool, yeah. yeah. And what about your um, your relationship to the arts and theatre and television? Do you come from an artsy family? Is that in your background? Oh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. Or not unless you count, you know, your uh, front room or sitting room as a stage where, you know, my family were very, very funny, my mum in particular, in terms of telling stories and things like that. They were great. But no, not a theatrical background at all. It came through school. So at primary school, we used to do things like country dancing and, you know, the nativity play and things like that. And so that was the first interest. And then um, by the time I was 10, my form teacher, oh, I was 11, my form teacher, Mr. Beach, um, was in an amateur dramatic society. So he took us to see a production that he was in at the old fire station in Norwood. And that kind of sparked something, I guess, because um, that was great. And then it just kind of continued from there. Brilliant. And do you uh, do you remember that uh, uh, that play you went to see at the old fire station in Norwood? Yes, it was called The Station Master's Apprentice. Don't know who it was by. And Mr. Beach <laughs> died. 
remarkably that old fire station in london in, in norwood is still a theater isn't it it's um, yeah. They've, yeah. They've, just, they've just done it up it's really impressive now i used i used to live literally right there sort of opposite oh, that really? theater uh and every and every now and again i'd uh i'd go i'd go and see something there but it was just sort of ramshackle tumble down like you say former fire station and then yeah. i went i went a few weeks ago just to have a look and it's it's properly been judged up they've got a fancy cafe and they've got oh, wow. that amazing artwork and stuff so someone's put some serious money in it's great that it's still going uh, i mean that's amazing uh, oh that makes me want to go and have a look oh you should yeah you definitely should it's uh it's yeah. still going i mean um well, obviously we can't right now, but when everything's open again, go and have a coffee. Yeah. It was really nice. So uh, tell us then, uh, that's how your relationship with the uh, with uh, theatre began, and what what was the, what was the path from there? What did you um, yeah? What were the next steps? Well, at my secondary school, um, we used to do a lot of. I think it was just to you know kind of keep us engaged and amused. But you used to do things for assembly, so I would write sketches and things I didn't know what I was doing then but that's what it was um and then we performed them just to you know make people laugh and then they started doing competitions and things and then the Rudolph Walker Drama Award started in my school um this is back in the oh 70s um yeah and we entered my friend Elaine McKenzie won the best actress award uh, that year. So, yeah, so it's always been a kind of little thing, but it was something that you sort of did on the side. You never thought about it as something that you would do as a job or a career. And when did it occur to you that you might actually do it as a job or career? It wasn't quite that it occurred to me. It was a friend of mine called Linda who was um, a bit older than me and she was looking for a teaching job. And I'd left school and I was still working at my Saturday job in the market. Um, only because I couldn't think of what I wanted to do. And I loved working in the market because it was great. My boss was fabulous, a guy called Roger Sine. And um, he was brilliant and did it was a lot of market? fun. Oh, we used to sell toilet requisites. That's what the sign <laughs> said, yeah. What does and that I, mean? Oh, well, I discovered it meant uh, like things like toilet paper with no perforation, sarsaparilla <laughs> by the pipe, the, the gallon. Uh, you had to bring your own container. Uh, things like that, yeah. Baby rubbers with no elastic around the legs. It was great. <laughs> um, um, and did you have to do like the proper market trade of stuff of like, you know, shouting and uh, attracting people's attention and whatnot? Nah, nah. You only shouted at the butchers opposite you when they were getting too leery or um, uh, or some of your customers occasionally. But uh, no, no, none of that calling out, which was a shame. I was in the sort of covered bit, allegedly covered, but it used to rain on us a lot. But I was in the cupboard at Brixton Market. Yeah, it was wonderful. Oh, yes, yeah, so I was telling you about how um, how I got into uh, theatre. So my friend Linda was looking for a job and she came across this advert for a drama school that was doing a course uh, that was called the Community Theatre Arts course. And she said, having read all the information, she said to me, I think you'd be really good at this. And I went, oh, no, I don't want to go to drama school. I don't know. No, I don't know. That. And then she said, I bet you're a fiver. You don't apply. And I went, oh, fiver? This is easy money. All I've got to do is apply. So I said, right, you're on. So it was a bet. I um, applied. I then had to go back to get in touch with my old drama teacher from school, a woman called Jill Walker, rang her up and met up with her and said, listen, I've got this audition. What do I do? Um, and she gave me lots of stuff to read. She said, do your bit that you did from um, 
this, the play that we'd done for O Level, um, uh, female transport, and um, and then she gave me lots of books to read about theatre and education and stuff like that. So I went off and had my audition. And uh, at the end of that day, I thought, do you know what? I might quite enjoy this. They'd better give me a place. And do you remember what you had to do for your audition? Um, you had to do um, some movement stuff, which I wasn't happy about because uh, all <laughs> these people came, you know, ready with their leotards and things. And I just took my shoes off and I just felt like a right, you know, um, and it wasn't my kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, you had to do your piece. You had to sing. You had to, um, there was all sorts of things. You did a voice kind of class. You did, it, I kind of, I guess it was a kind of microcosm of what it would be like in drama school. And it took all yeah. day. And it was, it was great. And then, and then you got in. Yeah. And then I got in and then it really started because then you're seriously there with people who really want to be there. And you kind of felt like a charlatan at first. And I guess I wasn't really, um, engaging as much as I could have done in the first year because I just found so much of it just so ridiculous. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, uh, I went to Rose Bruford in Sidcup in Kent and, um, there's a lake and one of the, uh, movement tutors wanted us to explore this feeling of being a daisy in the long grass. I thought, well, I've got an option. I either kill him or I go down <laughs> to the lake try to be a daisy. I mean, it was just doing my head in, stuff like that. Yeah. But the rest of it, people were great. <laughs> what, what does that mean, go and be a daisy in the grass? You have to well, go and lie I, down I and what, spend the day slowly growing, is that it? Well, I don't know, or swaying in the breeze or something. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I think I failed. Um, but where, when when was it during that training process that you really you really got hooked in and you start and you bought into it and started to yeah pursue it fully? I guess it was um, at the end of my first year. I had a tutorial, and for the first time, really told them honestly what I really felt about what we were doing and how it was uh, sitting with me. And um, and then things changed. I think I think I just stopped fighting it because I just thought it was a bit. Uh, wanky, actually, and I yeah. and I was really struggling with that, and um, and then I thought actually it doesn't have to be that. It's about how you apply yourself to whatever's uh, being offered to you. But you know, when you'd come home, and because I didn't um, leave home, although I threatened to, and then I had a look at um, a couple of the uh, flats that were available or rooms that were available, and I thought oh, I'm not living in that. I'm staying at home. So every night I'd come home, and my mum would ask me, you know, how was drama school and what did you do today and I thought I can't tell her she's going to think I'm wasting the government's money because you got a grant <laughs> um, but yeah so after that first year I thought right okay um, I just need to uh, not be afraid of whatever this thing is because it is so different to what I know and just embrace and take all the best bits that they've got to offer and that's what I did and it was great. What are the steps after that what was your first professional work? Three of us set up a company because we were you know, by the time you get to the end of your third year and you're looking around at what the industry's got to offer at that time, there wasn't that much for certainly young black women. The parts that um, were kind of being uh, offered around weren't great at all. And uh, so we set up our own theatre company. Uh, we called ourselves Theatre of Black Women and it was Bernadine Evaristo and Patricia Hilaire and myself. And so we started writing and performing our own work. And then our first, and this was just in local kind of fringe um, uh, venues. 
And then we got an invitation to the International Festival of Women's Theatre in Amsterdam and went out there for a week with a show. Uh, and, and making this work with your with your own company was that was that your first experience of directing? Did you take on that responsibility at that time? No, 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 not at all. We got in um, one of our tutors that had directed us at um, drama school. We had lots of visiting tutors, and one was a woman called Jude Alderson, and so she brilliantly stepped in and said, "Right, okay, I'll try and you know get you." guys together and sort this all out and she directed that piece that went to Amsterdam. So at that time you're uh, a writer and a performer but uh, obviously uh, and now you're predominantly known as a director uh, and, and, and indeed a producer. How did uh, how did that start for you? When did you start directing? Well as a, I have to go back a little bit because I'd written a play or the beginnings of one and it was entered in the Young Writers Festival at the Royal Court in Sloane Square in London. For that year, I was one of the competition winners. And your prize was a professional production of an extract of your play. And my extract was directed by Danny Boyle, who was the director of the theatre upstairs at the time. Um, and it was in rehearsals with him and watching what he was doing. I mean, having walked around going, yes, I'm a writer now, I started really watching what he was doing. And I thought, oh, do you know what? I want to do what he does. So <laughs> I said to him, Dad, what do I do? And he said, uh, speak to Max, uh, Max Stafford-Clark, who was the artistic director at the time. And I said, OK. So and true to form, if I want something, I won't let go until I get it. So I had a meeting with Max where I just assumed he would say, of course, you could be my assistant director and train here. And he went, no, I, I think you need to really think about this because you've trained as an actress, you've now started writing and now you want to direct? I went, yeah. He said, right, go away, think about it for a week and, and then come back to me. But I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So I waited the week just out of politeness, which was rare for me, but um, uh, I rang him back and went in for another two and a half hour meeting with him. And at the end of it, I think I just broke him and he said, yes, OK, um, I'll take <laughs> you on. Did you do like a residency at the Royal Court, if you like, where you were assisting lots of different people? Is that how it works? Well, you're primarily uh, Max's assistant, um, but I mm -hmm. ended up assisting um, Danny on a play called, oh, what's it called? Oh, no, my brain. Um, it will come back to me. But I did end up assisting Danny on a play. And then I met lots of other directors, um, Jules Wright, um, Annie Castledine, uh, Oh, loads of people. Um, and so I just kind of got involved. If I could help out with casting, I'd help out. Um, if I could, you know, just make coffee just to be in the rehearsal room, just to get an idea of how they worked. I'd do anything. Uh, and when do you uh, when do you make your first show as a director? When does that happen? Well, um, I did a piece. They had a, a festival called the uh, Older Young Writers. So off the back of that competition, um, they had one for those writers. And it was about encouraging them, which was great, and nurturing them. So I did uh, a production in the theatre upstairs um, of a play written by Killian Gideon. Oh, my memory. It's a long time ago. What was the name of the play? Oh, hopefully it will come back. But, um, yeah, so I did that. And then after that, I was like, oh, I've got to do more. I've got to do more. But um, So I spoke with Max, and I said, listen, I, I need to... Um, I need to do more. And I could get my grant extended, which was an Arts Council bursary um, mm -hmm. at the time. And I said I could get that extended, but you'd have to guarantee me a play. 
in the next year. And he said, I can't guarantee you that, Paulette. So I said, well, in that case, I have to go to somewhere that will. So I left and uh, I went up to the Octagon in Bolton. And uh, John Adams was the artistic director there. And he was looking for an assistant. So I applied, got it, and ended up at um, the, the Octagon in Bolton, yeah, for a year. Which must have been really exciting. And you can't get a more different space to the Royal Court than the Bolton Octagon. I know. Uh, know, Well, listen, uh, I'm a Londoner, right? So I didn't even know where Bolton was. And I struggled to understand people. You know, the first kind of couple of weeks there was tricky. But, um, yeah, so different. And so how long long were you in Bolton? And did you literally, like, pack up everything and just move to Bolton? Like, your whole life and everything? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was there for you. <laughs> and you got your show. What was the, what was the show? What shows did you do at Bolton? Oh, the very first one was Wait Until Dark. You know, it was part of the season, so that was the thriller for the season that year. So I did that. Um, Wait Until Dark, and then I, which is quite a, it's quite a creaky old thriller, but has that brilliant last scene that takes place in the complete dark, apart from the light of a fridge. Is yeah, that right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that first time when the audience screams and they jump, you go, yes, I've done it. I've done it. <laughs> so that was, um, yeah, creaky old thriller, but you could still make people jump. So that was great. That's great. I've been I've been keen to talk to people about um, like a sense of progress in a career, because obviously when we have these conversations or when you look at like a person's CV, it can all look very logical and like one thing led to another. Did it feel like that for you at the time? Did it feel like it was um, bound to happen? No, no, not at all. Not at all. It just felt like I'd found something that I loved doing and I just wanted to do it more and more. And it was about, you know, um, getting a job when you can. And the rest of the time, depending on my family and friends to kind of look after me. When does the, when does the television start, start for you? Because obviously you've directed loads of television as well. How does that journey begin? I was doing um, a, a, a musical... And it didn't work out. And I thought, maybe I'm not cut out for theatre anymore. (laughs) Age, you know, 20, whatever. Uh, So there was an opportunity for... Actually, I was older. Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, I was doing this uh, musical. It didn't work out. And and I thought, right, maybe I ought to look somewhere else. So there was a job going at the BBC for a brand-new sketch show and they needed an associate producer who could work with scripts and the cast and just kind of generally, you know, spread yourself out. So um, I applied and got that job. So I ended up working on The Real McCoy, which was a BBC sketch show, Black, Asian and White, at the time when it first started out. Um, and it was great. And I thought, right, uh, yeah, I don't mind this producing malarkey, so I'll have another go if I can, see if I can get better at it. And then there was nothing for me at the BBC. They said there was nothing for me at that time. So um, the production company that was making Desmond's, a sitcom, which was Humphrey Barclay Productions, was looking for a script editor. And I'd done, obviously, some of that uh, on The Real McCoy. So I went in and had a meeting with Humphrey and uh, eventually got um, taken on as their script editor. So then I script edited for um, a number of months on that next season of Desmond's. And at the end of it, Humphrey said to me, is that all you're interested in or is there, are there other things? And I said, well, I'm really interested in producing, having had one experience of being an associate. 
And so he said, well, why don't you stay on as mine and we'll see how we go. So I did. And then the next season I went back and script edited and co-produced with Humphrey. And then the last season I went back, uh, script edited and produced in my own right. So then I thought, right, that's it. I'll be a producer now. Um, uh, certainly in television. I was still doing the odd bit of theatre directing. But um, in terms of telly, that's where I thought I would be. Um, and then I went on to uh, produce some other things. So I did um, Ka-Ching, which was a kids series. I uh, was the first producer on that. And then I went on and did some more stuff, all comedy, as it turned out. Um, and yeah, and I thought, right, OK, so it's producing and uh, directing in theatre. That might work. And then I got approached by a producer. This is years later, right, Craig? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got approached by a producer who said to me, I know your work from Theatre Paulette. I think you could direct uh, drama. And I went, oh, no, listen, I'm a real Luddite. I can barely make my mobile work. I, you know, I don't have a I'm just not that kind of person. Not really understanding, even though I'd spent so much time by then working in television. My uh, focus had been on producing. And, yes, you do spend time with um directors but I wasn't really looking that close at what they were actually doing because as my job as a producer I was looking at what they they completed and then doing my critique or giving my notes and stuff like that so but the actual mechanics of how you direct for television I wasn't really um concentrating on because I never thought it would be something that I would do anyway um after a bit of persuading uh to this producer um I said okay all right i'll give it a try if it doesn't work i'm gonna blame you um, <laughs> and i went off and did um a block they call a block two episodes of um the tv drama holby city mm -hmm. so i went and did that and i loved it i mean i was terrified but i loved it and i thought oh and my god maybe this is it can you can you talk a little bit about the mechanics of it uh, and how, um, yeah, how it relates to being a director in the theatre, and how which skills are sort of transferable, and which and which is just um, and the other stuff you had to learn in order to be a, a great exponent of television drama. Well, do you know what? I'll be honest. With you. I think I am still. Uh, what's lovely about it is that I'm still learning every time you do a job. But I think that's right with any job that you do in this business. You learn uh, each time. Um, so I think one of the things that struck me was you still have to cope, deal, enjoy, play around with actors. The timing is very, very different. So in theatre where you'd have like, you know, three or four weeks rehearsal, getting to know them, getting to know the piece, you don't have that. So when you're auditioning for um, a, a TV job, you need to get the person that can do the thing that you need because you don't have time to get them there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So that was one of the first things that I kind of went, oh, yes, I can't just go for somebody who I think, oh, yes, I can see it in three, five, six weeks' time. I've got to do it with someone who can give it to me now. Um, also, the similarities, of course, is that you work primarily with actors because that's what you're doing on the floor. Um, the different things was, you know, I, again, learning about these things. The cameras can do lots of things for you. Whereas my eye would always do it in theatre. So it was getting my head around what the camera does, which is very similar or exactly the same as my eye. And if not, 
and actually even more than what my eye can do. Um, so it was working out how, you know, like when you pull focus on a stage yeah. and how you get your audience to look at one particular element at what, one point. Well, with this, it's like you kind of, it's different because the camera would show your audience exactly what you want them to see at any given second. So it was kind of getting my head around that and how you tell a story, therefore, with the aid of a camera as opposed to just the aid of your eyes. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago um, your work as a script editor. Uh, and I'm, yeah. I'm, re I'm really interested by that term because it's a, it's a term you hear a lot in television, but nobody really talks about what the work is. Can you, can you tell us what that was like for you and what, and what that actually means? Okay, so let's use Desmond's as an example, because I really, um, that, you know, I did that for three seasons and it was amazing. So at that time when I joined, I had something like eight writers. And so the writers would be commissioned. They would come to you with an idea of what they thought the episode could be about. So say, I don't know, Desmond gets a cold and Shirley has to run the shop. And meanwhile, the kids are, there's something happening at school with one of the kids and there's something happening with Michael at the back. So they come up with an idea and you have, so there's three threads to it. And you have a A, B and C really stories. So you would work through them. You talk through the idea about what would be good about it, what would work well, what wouldn't. Then they would go away and they would write um, a, a scene by scene breakdown of what the episode would look like. And then you'd go through that with them and maybe readjust things or change things around. Or then you'd really see whether or not um, the episode would work. Uh, and then once you were happy with that, then they would go away and write the first draft. And then I would look at that, do my notes, change things, suggest things. Uh, and then they would go away and do another write and then um, a rewrite. And then hopefully uh, that next draft would be um, progressing uh, to getting better and better. And sometimes it might take, I don't know, three or four drafts, five. Uh, it just depends. So that's what it is. It's a really close relationship with the writer. Uh, so, I'm, I mean, it sounds it sounds very like um, the relationship uh, in the theatre between a director and a writer, um, but yeah. solely focused, solely focused on the text and not having to deal with the actors. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. I have to ask, uh, Paulette, uh, you were involved in what is probably the greatest piece of theatre and television, or one of them, of the last 10 years, and that's the Olympic opening ceremony. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us, uh, you were the associate director, is that right, on the opening ceremony? Yeah. Can you yeah. Uh, please tell me everything about that experience, because it, uh, it was wild and magical and brilliant, and I'd love to know what went into making it. Well, um, okay, so it had already um, started. We all knew about it. We all knew that it was happening, and... Uh, I was sitting at home on the dole and uh, <laughs> watching daytime TV. I think I was watching Doctors, actually. And uh, the phone went and I, I was interrupted. So I said, hi, hi, yes, who is it? And this voice said, um, do you know who this is? And I went, yeah, what do you want? And uh, he said, do you know what I'm doing? I said, Danny, everybody knows what you're doing. As I said, what do you want? And he said, I think I might need some help. It was Danny Boyle. And we hadn't spoken in years because there was no need. You know, he was busy making movies and things. He said, come in and have a chat with me, Paulette, because I think I think you might want to do this. So I did. And um, he showed me there was a thing called a previs. I didn't know what that was. 
Um, it's a pre-visualization of what you think it could be. And I sat and watched this thing, which is a combination of bits of footage from wherever, bits of music, um, drawings, all sorts of things that are put together to kind of go, this is what we think it could look like. And at the end of it, um, he said to me, so, well, what do you think? And I went, are you mad? Of course I want to be part of this. Of course. And so uh, I became uh, the associate director of the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and then, um, so, as I said, I think that they were, they'd started about two or three months before, and I ended up working on it for a year. Uh, yeah, right up until the night. And it was um, extraordinary. And what, what, what was your work as associate director? What were, you, what were you tasked with? I was tasked with being Danny's right-hand woman. And, uh, and whatever he could do. So he was still shooting a movie called Trance at the time. So then my first job was just to kind of get to know this incredible team of people, of which there were hundreds, thousands, it felt like. So I would go to meetings, trying to hold the fort, but also trying to move things on. Um, and then I would run back to Danny and go, oh, I'd call him, or I'd go onto the set and say, Danny, we need to make a decision about this or about that. So... That was in the first instance, really. And then it was, um, it was everything that he did, really. So we auditioned 15,000 people, our volunteers, who without them, there would have been no opening ceremony. Um, they were extraordinary and so committed and amazing and just um, wonderful. Oh, I was... Uh, so we had the team, the creatives, as they called us, were... Danny, two designers, Mark and Sutterat, writer Frank Cottrell-Boyce, myself. So I was kind of involved on every aspect. So I would be working with the designers. I would be, oh, it's hard to describe what I was doing, but I was kind of doing what you would do to put on a show, but working obviously very closely with Danny, uh, even to the extent where rewrites and changes had to happen. So I started doing the rewrites. I would send them to Frank. And he would approve or change whatever I'd done or whatever needed to happen and then send it back to me. So I was involved because of all my experience of being a script editor and a writer and a director and a producer. All of those things came into play. So I did a bit of everything, really. I was involved in everything. Uh, one of the things that's, that's always interested me about it is obviously it was a huge thing with so many people involved in it. But... Um, and there was a lot of scrutiny, but it was still, it was still a surprise. How did, how with so many people, did you go about keeping it all a secret? Well, it was Danny. And he, um, he started it all off by saying, you know, we don't want to spoil it for anyone. So it's our secret. And that's the best way of getting ownership of something, you know, because then they took it on and it was their responsibility to make sure we didn't spoil it for the nation and, and globally, you know, and of course, as we were getting closer and closer to the actual day, you know, there were people trying to sneak in, pretending to be um, oh, all sorts of things, you know, whether a cleaner or um, one of the volunteers or, you know, stupid things. And the press were kind of, there were helicopters around trying to take um, images of the stadium. By then we had all the, um, the grass in. Do you remember the bit, you know, which we call the green and pleasant land? Yeah. All of that was in. And, uh, it was difficult to rehearse because, you know, people were taking photographs and, as I said, there were helicopters and things. And so um, we had a meeting in the office one night. It was just the four of us. I think it was Danny, Mark, Sutterat and myself. 
And we talked about whether or not we should let them take photographs of the green and pleasant land. And it was split down the middle. And um, Danny and Which I side were you on? Going, yeah, I was on it was Danny and I, I suppose because we're directors, really. And the other two were designers. But we kind of went, look, they will never in a billion years think of what is going to happen next, which was, you know, the biggest scene change ever into the Industrial um, Revolution. So we let them take pictures. And then, of course, what happened was in the press, there were photographs of the green and pleasant land where they said, oh, well, it looks like, you know, Teletubbies. And uh, it looks like they're just going to do some kind of, you know, um, oldie worldy uh, countryside fair fate kind of thing, which, you know, who wants to see that? And we thought, yeah, we've gone. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I wonder if we can switch now and just talk uh, a little bit about process. And I wonder, can you tell me when you're working uh, in the theatre as a director, what does the first week in your rehearsal room look like? What do you get up to? Oh, gosh, the first week. Um, uh, I'm usually I'm still amazingly. I still get really nervous on the first day. So I I don't like to do too much because I'm just a bit I'm trying to keep the hysteria down in myself. So I normally just um, get the actors measured by the designer. We look at a model of the set. We read the script. And then we might have a little bit of a chat about an overall feeling of what the story is. And then I usually go, I can't do any more because I didn't sleep last night because I was too nervous. Um, so see you tomorrow. <laughs> and then the next day, we'll just start working through the script slowly but surely from the beginning um, to the end. So um, a lot of questions are asked. Um, by me and we try and I try and get people up on their feet as soon as possible so usually by day two we'll have read maybe scene one or something or started working on scene one and then by the end of the day we'll have got it on its feet just to try it out just to see what it feels like and when yeah. and when and when you um when you make that first passer to scene up on its feet what um what needs to have taken place to get you to that point? So um, obviously, whenever we talk about this, people say, oh, we, we read it and we ask questions. But I'm really interested in what, what do you think an actor needs to know in order to move the play for the first? Well, um, the thing they need to really, in a way, is that you need to get rid of the script as soon as you can. So, um, so that they can start to embody these characters that they are helping to build and create. So... For me, I think the sooner you can get them up on the floor, even with the script in their hand, you start making that process happen. So I'm not looking at what happens in that first initial get up on the floor and let's move it around to make anything, you know, occasionally something sticks and you think, oh, that move was quite good or that made sense. You know, you're guided by the script to a certain extent. So it's really about getting the actors to start moving and start feeling those characters rather than being stuck making it a kind of intellectual exercise. Actors are physical beings, and I think the sooner you get them being physical, the better. So that's really what that's about. Because normally, you know, you, don't, you might not remember anything that you've done in that first, um, oh, let's get up on the floor when everyone's nervous. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't matter. It's about breaking that, um, uh, that fear barrier. And then playing, really, because that's what they are. They're players. And, uh, and you can only play if you are moving. And you watch children playing, they run around and they do all sorts of things and they try things out and some things work and some things don't. And that's absolutely what the rehearsal room should be about. Uh, so by the end of that first week, where do you like to have got to? What do you, what do you want to do on that Friday afternoon? Um, maybe run Act One. Great. I know. Which is, and it'll be carnage, of course. 
but it will be fun and it will be great and it will just liberate us all and it makes you feel like okay we're not so afraid of what this thing is now because we're beginning to understand it it's kind of working in layers really so then you go back and you do the same with that too and hopefully you get that done in the second week and then um I'm really horrible. I go, let's run the whole thing and let's see what it looks like. And of course, not expecting anything to be um, completely amazing, but I am looking for some gems. I'm looking to see, you know, how brave they're going to be. And then we go back and then it's again the process of going through it um, scene by scene, line by line. Sometimes if that's what's required, um, if there are stunts or dances or, you know, then you have those things happening in conjunction with, um, the straightforward rehearsal, singing, you know, if that's applicable, that is happening alongside the rehearsals as well. So just depending on the piece, um, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. Great. Um, I just have a couple of quick questions to finish off with, if that's all right, Paulette. Yeah, of course. This is nice. Thank you. It's <laughs> my first one. Oh, your first ever podcast. Oh, that's very exciting. I'm, gl I'm glad we could be the I first. Know. That's great. Um, I wonder, can you tell us about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind? Oh, I went to the Serpentine and there was an exhibition of a woman called Faith Reinhold. She's um, African-American and she was, it was her first exhibition ever and she was in her 80s and it was extraordinary. What kind of work does she make? Oh, she did all sorts of things like collage work, all about, you know, kind of growing up in Harlem, you know, 80, well, 70 years ago. Um, so poetry, um, but all hand painted or, as I said, collage work or there were quilts. She did all sorts of things and they were vibrant and uh, exciting and funny and touching and moving as well. So, yeah, it was great. And um, just finally, to finish off, can you recommend something for us to all enjoy while we're social distancing? Oh, gosh. Um, what would I recommend? Uh, don't do any of the things that I've been doing because they're a complete disaster, like shaving your own head. I don't recommend that. <laughs> um, uh, and if you can't cook, I don't recommend trying new things because I don't really cook and I nearly poisoned myself, I'm sure, um, a couple of weeks ago. I think all I would say is that don't be afraid of, and I am a Luddite, don't be afraid of the technology that allows us to be as close as we can um, to our loved ones and to our friends. Don't be afraid of it. Go for it because it pays off. Don't be afraid to try something new, whether it's sitting for five or ten minutes and meditating and just thinking about, you know, whatever it is you need to do to get you through this that makes you a better person, that makes you more understanding, that makes you more um loving i would try things like that that's what i've been doing i've been um, as i said i've been reading stuff that um i probably you know on that list of things oh i'll read that on holiday i'm reading it now i think anything that just makes you feel as though there is still purpose to life um helps so yeah experiment away in the kitchen you know decorating making things um do whatever floats you but have a go at it because you might surprise yourself Brilliant. Paulette, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Craig. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghampleyhouse.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released. Music.